Title 35 of the United States Code, Section 103, mandates that a patent not be given when the differences between the subject matter sought to be patented and the prior art are such that the subject matter as a whole would have been obvious at the time of the invention was made to a person having ordinary skill in the art. Howdy, I'm Preston Morgan, and I host this podcast, which we've named Skilled in the Art. The we I refer to as Intellectual Property Aggies, a student group at Texas A&M University School of Law that produces this podcast, and is filled with students aspiring to be copyright, patent, and trademark attorneys. We do different types of episodes on this show, and this type of episode is a business casual one. For our business casual series, we kick our feet up and get to know the people, teach and practice the various forms of IP. Today we are so lucky to have Professor Megan Carpenter. Currently she teaches here at Texas A&M, but soon she will be heading north to become the dean of UNH School of Law. Before she begins this journey, we take a step back and we hear her origin story, and it begins in the mountains of West Virginia. I grew up in that kind of classic country setting um, in the mountains of West Virginia. Um, which uh, I absolutely loved. We grew up on a, on a country road with my aunt and uncle nearby and my grandparents nearby. Mm. And um, we lived along the Tigert River and would you know canoe to each other's houses in the summer and spend lots of time on my grandparents' beach all summer. And even still, it's the place that my family tries to return to in, in the summertime for vacations. We call it really summer at the river. And so it's, you know, when are you going to be there for summer at the river? And so even though it's not an entire summer for any of us really anymore, um, we all gather there as often as we can and to hang out on the beach and go out in kayaks and canoes um, and hope to teach, you know, our kids the same thing. Yeah, and, and they all love it, the kids? They do. They're kind of... Um, it's it's not just really where we grew up, but really it's I think very formative to our identity as um, you know as people. Um, that one of the most important things in your growing up, where where I'm from, is is the the year you swam the river. And when you grow up, and you know as you're a kid, you can't wait till you can be the one to swim the river. And you if you can swim all the way across by yourself then that's the time that, you know, you're allowed autonomy and to go out in a canoe by yourself or you don't have to have a life jacket or, you know, you can kind of do some things independently. So um, I swam the river when I was nine. And, um, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of that indelible fact about you. Uh You know, Megan Carpenter swam the river age Uh nine. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, and our kids do the same thing. So it's, um, it's a really special place to be from, and um, it's something that is really, I think, a part of my my whole family. Yeah. yeah. So, what you do? Uh, what you do after you swam the river? Where'd you uh, Where'd you go to college? Um, I went to I, I went to West Virginia University. I was um, supposed to go to Cornell and mm-hmm. deferred a year because I had a scholarship at um, West Virginia and thought, mm-hmm. um, you know, that. Uh, I would go there and, um, you know, and, and for a year and kind of offset some of those costs. But 
my brother and sister were a lot younger than um, than I. My sister was is eight years younger, and my brother's ten years younger. So, at about that time, um, when I was leaving high school, I had gone to a boarding school for a couple of years outside of Washington D.C. It was an all girls boarding school, mm. and um, my sister was in elementary school, and she. Um, she had to write a little autobiography for a project and, you know, each person had a page and I had my, my page. And, um, so she said about me, she said that I always, you know, my sister always gets me really good presents, but I don't know her very well because she doesn't live with us. And so, um, that was really hard for me. And at that point I thought, you know, really it's time to, to come home and put priorities in, in the right place. So, um, I stayed and, you know, when she was in high school and, and um, she, you know, was in four sports and, you know, I got to go to all of her games and, mm. and um, really be a part of her life and my brother's life as they were growing up through high school and, um, and, and going to WVU really facilitated that yeah. relationship. And, and so um, it was a great experience. Yeah. So what did you do at, uh, at West Virginia? Hmm. Um, academically or socially, this is it's going to be a dangerous question. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> well, were you really involved in uh, in undergrad? Was that something that uh, you know you, were you out there and doing stuff? You know, I think that was part of a struggle. Um, that it was fine in a lot of ways, but at a school that's really big, yeah. it's harder to kind of find your, I think, identity where you don't feel like a part of a, of a real close-knit academic community. And that is, I, some, I think, something that I've tried to cultivate in our programs here um, is a sense of that kind of community where, you know, you really get to know the students and know their mm-hmm. names and, and it becomes, um, you know, a, a really tight-knit group. I don't think I had that so much in my undergraduate education. Mm-hmm. Um, I did work in college radio for a while, oh, and yeah. I loved that. Um, and that was kind of a, you know, that was a nice group to to be a part of and yeah. um, led to, you know, I did some other part-time radio work as well. And um, I love music and I love art. And um, so at the time, uh, Morgantown, West Virginia had a, had a really great music scene. So mm-hmm. the college radio station often got to do, you know, interesting interviews and artist features and um, and then there were some great, you know, indie bands that would come through at the same time. So I still have a weakness for, um, you know, early '90s um, college rock. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so did you know that you wanted to go to law school while you were at undergrad? I didn't. I think that, um, and in fact, I majored in I majored in foreign languages um, and fo- with a focus on Spanish. And I, I think the thing that really drew me to law school is um, the kind of analytical approach and analytical thinking. Mm. Um, I always, I'm one of those weird people who I, I always like to do those those brain teaser puzzles that, you know, they're all throughout the LSAT. I think when I saw that what the LSAT was all about, I thought, this is the first, you know, this is the test for me. This is, <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to do. I might be the only person in the world that feels that way, but... Um, I really love the structure of law school and the way that uh, my legal education helped me to think about things in a different way. I think it it helped me, in a way, be better at whatever I profession I chose, um, whether I, I chose to be kind of the traditional lawyer or or not. 
Um, and uh, and I, I really loved that that aspect of it. Yeah, so once you did finally decide to go to law school, that that was the choice for you. You know, uh, how did what was your experience? Did you did you enjoy it? I loved law school. Um, I was a, a kind of a non traditional student in a way because I had taught Spanish uh, in grad school and for a year after that, before mm-hmm. in a university setting, before I went to law school. So. I had been out for a little while and also had been teaching, um, which I think gives you a different perspective yeah. on um, on learning. Um, and so I, I loved the first year that really broke down a lot of my assumptions about thinking and the rule of law in general and law as kind of a democratic instrument. And then um, throughout the second and third year, I developed so many relationships with people that are still important to me today. Mm. Um, people, you know, uh, older students who were mentors to me, um, with whom I'm still very close, and uh, professors who have guided me in my career even to this point. Um, mm. I sent a few emails in the last week or so to to professors I'd had in law school, um, uh, and you know. Told them, you know, just just how significant their their mentorship has been to me over the years, and and as I'm kind of moving on to to a new chapter, a new position right now. Um, and um, and I also had my my first son in law school, mm. which was um, a, quite a unique experience. Yeah. <laughs> having him over was just before Thanksgiving break, the week before Thanksgiving break, in my third year. Wow. And then um, ended up bringing him to most of my classes mm-hmm. in the first, I mean, the second semester of my of my third year. Yeah. And um, I remember, I'll never forget coming back after he was born and going to my tax review for my tax exam. And you know, I have this like you know two week old kid, and I'm you know he's in my arms, and I'm not even sure how to change a diaper. And there was a horrible, he had a terrible accident, and <laughs> I have to you know rush him out. Of course, none of my classmates are are happy about this. And the professor, I imagine, was just mortified. And I'm kind of, you know, trying to bundle him up and rush him out of the room. And I'm trying to change his diaper on the the hard floor in the hallway. Um, and um, so that was definitely kind of an adventure in in my third year. But uh, but I, I absolutely loved law school. And I knew at that time that what I wanted to do eventually was to teach. Yeah, yeah. Because then after that, you, uh, you went and got your LLM, right? I did. I did. And um, I always thought I was going to be doing um, international or immigration work or something like mm. that because um, of my background in Spanish. And in law school, I got a couple of grants. One was to do some research in Spain for a summer on um, historic preservation and cultural property uh-huh. issues. And then another one was to teach a pilot program on discussing legal issues in Spanish. Um, mm-hmm. So some professors participated and some students participated, and we guided the discussion at all different levels of, of speaking Spanish. And we tried to discuss legal issues in Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, which was um, fun and comical, um, but, uh, but, but very interesting overall. And I knew I wanted to teach eventually, so um, I knew there were a few different paths to, to doing that and and um, one of them was to 
get some experience working for a, a really good firm. And okay. so that's kind of the route that I, that so you I went, took. So did you go to a, a firm before you went and got your LLM? I did. I did. Okay. I went to work for Kirkpatrick and Lockhart, which is now K&L Gates in Pittsburgh. And um, it was in the late 90s, early 2000s during the dot-com explosion. And mm. I, um, as, as a young associate, um, we kind of rotated through different departments as you figured out what practice group you were going to be in. And um, I, I thought I would be doing international work. And in the end, um, at some point, as I worked in different areas, at some point somebody asked me if I wanted to work on a trademark application. And I don't even really knew, know that I knew what a trademark was, but I said, sure, I'd be happy to. And I did it, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Oh, wow. And um, so I grabbed every assignment that had to do with intellectual property after that. And the mm. the center of the IP practice at Kirkpatrick and Lockhart um, was in Pittsburgh. So uh, we had a, a really a large but close-knit practice group of really smart people and um, doing incredible work intellectually. And... Um, working for really interesting clients that had some yeah. unconventional issues. And uh, I, I, uh, I, I absolutely loved sort of, I, I think there I learned the art of the practice of law. Yeah. And even still, my time at K&L is my gold standard for um, what it is to collaborate and work with other people. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, often I think academics can be a sort of isolating endeavor. Mm-hmm. Often you're, you know, you're writing something in a silo or, you know, working on your own project. But uh, my style is naturally much more collaborative than that. And, and, um, and so I think that stems from my work at, at K&L at the time. So uh, when you got to K&L, did you, uh, did you think you might be doing trademark work? Or if they were an IP, if they have like an IP focus, like did you kind of anticipate that? I didn't at all. Yeah. Um, I... I thought I would be doing more um, immigration and international work. And in fact, I did not take an IP class in law school. Um, There really, there, there might've been one or two, but it wasn't on my radar at all. Um, I remember there was an IP survey class that I thought was for engineers. I didn't, I didn't have any understanding or appreciation for what IP was. It was just really early in the game. Yeah. And, um, now, I was just talking with a student this morning during a meeting, and he was saying, you know, what would you do differently? Um, you know, if you're me, what, you know, looking back, what would you do? And I, and I thought, oh, if I could only, you know, be at a law school as a student where I had all of the opportunity in the world in IP, I would take all the classes I could. Yeah. I would, you know, enroll in clinics. I would try to do externships, internships. And, um, you know, it, it's possible now to graduate with a, a great skill set in IP where I kind of went about it the sort of the back way, the re, you know, in reverse, mm-hmm. where I learned the practice. And then it was only after that, through scholarship and research and teaching, that I thought, oh, this is the foundational policy. This is why we do it this way, or this is why we do this that way. Um, and uh, and so I, I just think the, the opportunities that many law schools have today in the area of IP are are incredible. And I, I only wish I could have taken advantage of those at the time. While she was working at the law firm, she fought for some pretty big clients. She wrestled with interesting trademark issues, and she stepped in the ring with the best of them. I spent a lot of time working for uh, 
one particular IP client, uh, which um, which was World Wrestling Federation Entertainment wow. um, Inc. And with at that time, um, the WWFE was in all kinds of experiencing a, a lot of interesting growth, and um, they were developing a, a football um, a fo- a football league called the XFL. Okay. And um, a media company uh, that released music. And um, really, it was this incredible time in in their history as yeah. an entertainment and media company. And I hope I'm not ruining it for anyone when I say that professional wrestling isn't real. But <laughs> it's this huge conglomerate of... Um, of intellectual property. I mean, they are at base an yeah. intellectual property company. Yeah. All their value is in IP. So yeah. um, it was just an incredible experience. And, you know, a lot of times we were able to to do things, to make arguments, to push things forward that um, wouldn't necessarily have been the, cl- the case for many other clients. Yeah. And, um, you know, the publicity alone was, um, was usually a positive. And so there are all kinds of matters that uh, I was able to work on um, as a junior associate um, as, as the years went on that were unique and um, um, really pushed the limits of IP, whether it's, um, you know, our firm filed the very first UDRP domain name case in the world. Yeah. And um, we also, you know, pushed... The boundaries of the copyrightability of characters and you know all, all kinds of really interesting uh, work there, um, conceptualizing uh, wrestling moves as trademarks um, wow. and branding and so, so so like the moves that they do they're they're trademarked like they're would, they're trademarked moves I, are, I would are argue yes yeah. I would argue that that's when you see someone do the people's elbow you know who that is yeah. right it's not um, you know not just anyone can do uh, can do the people's elbow so. Um, that was something that I found intellectually uh, fascinating, and and um, but you know in the end I think when I when I left the firm, uh, probably you know ninety percent of my work was was uh, for the WWF, and um, and I loved it, but I also wanted to at that point explore other sides of IP, mm-hmm. so um, I decided to enroll in a postgraduate program at a. Uh, a human rights center in Ireland and looked there at um, IP outside the context of corporate interests and instead looking at how IP and IP law impacts marginalized communities and indigenous peoples. Oh. So it was a, um, the pendulum kind of swung, yeah. you know, 180 degrees in the mm-hmm. other direction. And, um, and, and that was a really, uh, interesting period of time as well, because you start to see IP um, uh, as having disparate impact on different people. Yeah, yeah. So how so? You- well, a lot of times um, our IP law is is formed in a very specific way, and that is, um, you know, the first person to want to to capitalize on um, a piece of intellectual property. Um, will have the rights that are associated with with that IP. But sometimes um, there are certain indigenous groups that may want to uh, not exploit those rights, but may want to use 
um, IP as a shield to prevent other people from exploiting those rights. Mm-hmm. It also really um, has a, a lot to do with the nature of how we conceptualize um, rights as being very individual when it comes to IP. And mm-hmm. when it, when there are when we're looking at indigenous groups, often they have conceptions of communal rights. And so our traditional IP system doesn't quite jive with that um, the concept of you know a community or uh, a group of people owning certain IP. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. Few are as committed to students as Professor Carpenter is, which makes for the perfect excuse to give them an ad spot. Students, they're great. They're smart. They're taught at one of the top-ranked IP schools in the country. If you're hiring, they could be yours. We have 1Ls, 2Ls, 3Ls, and even some graduates. Maybe you're looking for someone with a particular background. Maybe you're just looking. It's all all right. Shoot me an email at ipapodcast at gmail.com, and let's see if I can find a student for you. A big part of Texas A&M's IP program is CLIP, the Center for Law and Intellectual Property. Like Professor Carpenter, CLIP has its own origin story, and Professor Carpenter shares it with us next. I guess it goes back to the first year I was here. I joined the school in 2007, and that year I was put on a committee that was, I think, called something like the Center for the Practice of Law or something. And it was a committee that, a faculty committee that was charged with exploring different models of of legal education. And one of the things that I proposed at the time was that we develop centers of expertise that were more holistic in nature. So we look at the curriculum, but then we think about um, externship opportunities, community service opportunities, opportunities for our students to engage with each other and to engage with the pra- with practitioners, to engage with scholars, to engage in the community, and for our scholars to be able to to also engage with with one another and, and in a global environment. And um, and I I thought about ways that we might implement that uh, on you know systematically across the across the law school, and then I think you know the committee kind of as committees sometimes do you know was, had a name change or mm-hmm. change of charge or something and mm-hmm. and um, I found myself really just trying to develop some of those things in the IP space. I was the first intellectual property professor hired full time here. Um, and, uh, and so I started to, to work with students and, and develop, um, we developed a need to know workshop where students can get out into the community and help educate underserved, uh, um, parts of the community, uh, artists, musicians, entrepreneurs on legal issues that impact them. Um, we started to work to develop more internships and externships and mm. pro bono projects and all of a sudden, I realized we kind of had a center. So I proposed uh, that we create it um, at, a, at a faculty meeting um, early on. And I think this must have been, we created CLIP in 2009. And I remember when uh, we were talking about it at the meeting, somebody said, well, isn't, isn't doing this putting the cart before the horse? And at the time, I said... Um, something that really rings true to me now, which I said, well, we already have the horse. I'm just asking to name the horse because we've really 
created it. We had a center yeah. in effect. And um, and so from that point, we just, you know, thought, what are we going to call it? I should probably say center and law and intellectual property. And so we <laughs> kind of put it all together. And at that point, um, from that point on, CLIP has grown just by leaps and, and bounds. And it's been uh, an incredible experience to watch it grow. But one of the most important pillars of of CLIP is that it's been student-driven, that the students have been such uh, such enormous participants in the project of the center and where their interests lie and, and um, what they want to do, we try to facilitate their doing that. And, and so um, students have been um, vital to the development of, of the center. And I, I, um, I hope it you know, will we'll always be that way. So has, uh, has, has CLIP just always been smooth sailing? Have they ever uh, had any bumps along the way? It's mostly been smooth sailing. I mean, to the extent that exponential growth can be smooth sailing, um, there have been, you know, it has just been um, incredible to watch it grow. Now we have, you know, about seven IP professors and, um, uh, and you know, so much opportunity, three clinical programs um, that have been uh, started as a part of CLIP that have gone on to do their own thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so really, uh, I, it has been wonderful to watch it take on a life of its own and really to become one of the flagship programs of the law school. Mm-hmm. We had one um, interesting situation a few years ago where another school contacted us that also had uh, used the acronym uh, CLIP to mm-hmm. identify a center at its law school. Um, and that was an interesting experience. It was before I got tenure. So it was, mm-hmm. I was up for tenure mm-hmm. and, um, I, I all of a sudden get copied on a, a cease and desist letter that went to the president of the university. Wow. And, um, and that was an interesting, I guess that's a, yeah. a bump in the road, um, or it was a potential <laughs> bump in the road. Uh, and, um, you wow. know, our position there was, you know, if you have a center at a law school, you're probably mm. going to have C and L and an acronym. And right. um, and if you're focused on intellectual property, you know, there are only so many ways you can organize those four right. letters yeah. um, as as an acronym. And, and that we aren't really claiming it as a trademark. We're really just, this is our acronym of, of our center. And um, I, I think the most disturbing thing to me about it was just, you know, I think it's awesome to be doing this in law schools, that we're giving students opportunities that they never would have had before. We're contributing to the community in ways that, um, you know, is, um, you know, hasn't been done before. And Mm so um, as part of that, shouldn't we as law schools support each other in that and say like, let's instead, you know, visit each other and share our ideas. And, um, you know, and I think what you're doing is great. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, I hope you think, what we're doing is great, but even if you don't, I hope you think it's okay. So um, yeah. that was kind of where I um, came out. And in the end, um, we were able to to resolve it. I think there was some PR about it, and and um, um, and we were able to resolve it amicably. And I'm sure there there are probably a, a dozen clips out there <laughs> right now, and I, I think that's all fantastic. Yeah. 
So, uh, so now we'll move on to uh, you know your new your new position. Uh, so you were just recently uh, named the new dean of UNH Law. Uh, tell us tell us about that. I, it's been a it was a hard decision to leave Texas A and M and everything that we've built here, um, but I am incredibly excited about the opportunity to join the University of New Hampshire. Um, Franklin Pierce, uh, which became UNH a few years ago, mm. um, has a, a history of excellence and innovation in IP that um, really has been um, unparalleled for a long time. I mean, they've been a top 10 program since the U.S. US News and World Report's been ranking IP programs. So um, uh, the opportunity to join an organization that um, has a strong IP program is exciting to me, but they also have um, a lot of aspects of um, the program there of, of legal education that are innovative and unique, and it's just a, it's a great faculty, and um, um, and I'm looking forward to being a part of that and to develop interdisciplinary opportunities with the main campus, which is something that I've really focused on here um, a great deal over the last few years. Um, and so to be a part of the the community, the vibrant alumni community as well, um, and with their global presence, I think it'll be uh, an exciting opportunity. I've been doing a lot of administrative work here mm-hmm. over the last um, several years, and um, I will miss not being in the classroom yeah. but um, for a while. But um, um, but I, I'm really looking forward to it. It'll be a growth opportunity for sure. Uh, and uh, it, as you get older, I, I've been do, reading this research that uh, the only way to develop new brain cells is to do new things. And so the way I look at it is I'll be creating a lot of new neural pathways um, in throughout this process. And I think legal education is at such an exciting time of change, and it presents a lot of opportunity for um for some schools and uh, and so i i think unh is kind of uniquely poised to take advantage of some of that so i'm I'm looking forward to it but it will be it'll be hard to leave here and to leave um especially the students in the community in fort worth professor carpenter will be sorely missed but she doesn't leave us empty-handed before she goes i ask her for some parting advice I think, yeah, no, that's, it's just such a great, I mean, it's, it has a lot of gravity to it. So I probably will think of, don't think I'm not going to be continuing to email you guys advice as time goes on. This isn't going to be the only advice, but I I think I was talking with a student this morning in my office and um, as he and I were, were discussing his future path, we were, I was talking about, you know, I think it's really important to stay open um, for whatever opportunities might come your way and, you know, to kind of have that mojo of just being really open to the possibilities. And I, I feel like most of the jobs that I've ever gotten have come through some strange thing, some not not kind of a normal path, but... Um, to stay open and to pursue, to cast a wide net even outside of your, you know, the interests that you that you may have, and and then I think that's a combination. You have to combine that with a certain level of intentionality. So when I was at, at working at um, Kirkpatrick and Lockhart, 
I was really open to the possibilities of, of the types of work that were available to me, even outside of the interests that I had defined for myself. Mm. But then when I found something I loved and that I was passionate about, I think you have to be absolutely intentional about grabbing that with both hands and all you've got um, and building your practice. I think it's, you know, it's damaging to think that you, you know exactly where you want to end up and that you, you know, you just are, are sort of have blinders on and you, you know, pursue that path exclusively. But when you do find something that, um, that you're passionate about, I think to honor that is, is something that's, that's important. And if what you want to do is intellectual property, there is so much connection between intellectual property and everything else. I mean, there's not one thing that I feel like someone could present to me that I can't find some IP connection to. And so if IP is your passion, then you're lucky because it's, it's everywhere you look. It's, it's human creativity in, in all its forms. Um, and, and so I think that would really be my advice to stay open and then also balance that out with intentionality when you find your passion. Unfortunately, that is it. That is our show. Many thanks to Professor Carpenter. No sappy goodbyes because we'll see her again soon. Thanks to all of those that helped make this podcast possible. Our intro is pretty cool. It's a mashup of music from Peas and audio from Oye. Our outro is pretty cool too. Our own Matt Pellegrino played that for us. If you want to keep up with us, follow us on Twitter at IP Aggies. We'll be back in a couple weeks with Professor Irene Caboli. This has been Skilled in the Art. I'm Preston Morgan. Thanks for listening.